preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, or another word is antitype, or a pattern, you know, or what we call a type shadow, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter here is laying a parallel between what happened in the flood with Noah when his family and him were saved by the ark and what happens to the believer in salvation. Now, a lot of, a lot of denominations out there teach either regeneration by baptism or that you must be baptized to be saved. That is a false doctrine. The Bible does not teach that you must be baptized in water to be saved. Okay, nowhere in scripture is that in there. If that was the case, then how come Cornelius got filled with the Holy Spirit when he heard the gospel being preached by Peter? It says they believed on Jesus and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. How many know we've got to be saved and born again before we can be filled with the Holy Ghost? So he was already born again, him and his family saved, filled with the Holy Ghost. And then Peter says, well, why should we deny them baptism in water then? We already can see the evidence of salvation in their life. Let's baptize them, okay? As we know, most baptism in water is an evidence of something happening to the heart, something going on on the inside. And Peter here gives us an example of that because he says, Noah... While the ark was preparing, I love that reminds me of that word prepared when Jesus said, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. Amen. You know, Jesus is now preparing us an ark of salvation to be saved from the wrath to come in the last days. Amen. Amen. You know me. You've heard me teach before. I'm a firm believer that the church is not appointed under wrath. The church does not go through the wrath of God. We are saved from the wrath to come, just like Noah and his family were saved by the wrath. Just like Lot and his family were saved by the wrath that was to come. There are many references to God saving his people from the wrath and judgment of God in the Holy Scriptures. Amen? So Jesus has prepared us an ark. He's prepared us a place of salvation. And so let's think about this. What saved Noah and his family? Did the water save Noah and his family? Or did the ark save Noah and his family? The ark saved his family. All right? Just like water doesn't save us in our salvation, what saves us is obedience unto faith in Jesus Christ. Because that. Noah would have, I believe in my heart, Noah would have perished just like all the others when he heard the voice of God to say, build me an ark, there's going to be a flood. And he'd have been like, oh man, I must have had too much peace last night. I'm not really hearing from the Lord there. You know, that, that can't be God. Uh, that's crazy. There, what do we need a boat that big for? There's, they didn't even have rain up until that point. Can you imagine if he was disobedient? He would have perished like the others. But the Christian believer, our obedience unto the faith is what saves us. We've run into the ark of salvation, amen? We've believed the ark, we've built it, we've built a house, we've built this house of faith that is the foundation of Jesus Christ, and we've run into it, and we're being saved. And he puts a little parenthesis there, and it says, it's not putting away a filth of the flesh. In other words, the baptism, when you, when you baptize, you come out of the water, you know, and, and, and you know, when you take a bath, you, you know, when we all have a bath or a shower, we, we, the dirt rolls off, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't go on the inside. But that resurrection that happens on the inside of a man is what counts. And so that's what he means. The, the flood and the ark is a type shadow of our salvation. That is going to happen. And you know, folks, it's going to happen. You know, and I, and, I, and I listened to the tape and I thought I went over the scriptures again of what we talked about last week. And 
You know, everywhere we turn to in Jude and in 2 Peter and those different places last week, I looked at them scriptures in context. And if you take them in context, every one of them said this. Look, if the angels didn't get away from the wrath of God, neither are humans. Unbelievers. You know, no one's, they, he didn't even give them a break. All right. He didn't, they didn't escape the judgment. The unbelievers not going to escape judgment. And you know what? The Bible even teaches later on, and we'll see this. The believer is not even going to escape judgment. Because every believer will be judged according to their works that they did for Christ. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. All right? It's the Bema seat. All right? And it's not a white throne judgment. It's more like uh, the Greek word is t- t- talks about where, you know, in the Olympics where they have them different pedestals for what place you came in. All right? That's what the word Bema means there. And so every believer is going to be judged and given a reward or, or not, you know, when we all meet the Lord. So even the believer is going to come under the judgment of Christ. All right, but not unto condemnation, the Bible says. So, verse 22. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on, the, is, is on the right hand of God. Where is Jesus today? He's at the right hand of God. Angels, authorities, and powers being made subject unto him. All right, everything's been made subject unto him. I love this scripture here because it brings authority and power together. You know, and the authority and power that the Father gave the Son, the Son has given to the church. Jesus has given us the authority and the power as well. All right? Now, sometimes we see that word authority translated as power in the English. All right, but there's two words there there's authority and power. All right. There's the actual, the right, the privilege. Okay. You know, we have, you know, there's an authority. If you think that you're, if you young people think that you're ever going to get out from under authority, you're crazy. Once you get married, you're still under authority. All right. Husbands should submit themselves to the authority of a local pastor. Wives should submit themselves to the authority of their husbands. Children should submit themselves to the authority of their parents. And eventually when you get married and you start providing and you have a job, you're going to have to submit yourself to the authority of your employer. You have to submit yourself to the authority of the magistrates and the governors that make the laws that we can have, you know, a peaceful society. You're never going to escape authority. It took me forever to realize that as a young kid. They beat my head in when I was in the Navy because I had a problem with authority. I did not want people to tell me what to do. Let me give you a quick tip in life. Get used to people telling you what to do. It will happen your whole life. Husbands that you've been around for a while... Embrace your pastor telling you what to do. You should listen to your pastor more than your boss. And unfortunately, we got some people that listen to their doctors more than they do their pastors or their employers. I know some people, their doctors are their pastors. I'm preaching a little hard here, but I'm telling you. Because nobody, listen, and this is why I say this about doctors and pastors. Doctors care about your body. All right? But the pastor cares about your soul. And your soul is eternal. That's why you should place more emphasis on your relationship with your pastor because they care for your soul if they're a good pastor. All right? And if you want to know what makes a good pastor or not a good pastor... Just read Timothy. All right. So I felt the Holy Ghost on that. I've been waiting to kick it into gear here all night. I just right now I feel the presence of the Lord. It feels good in here now. Praise the Lord. Now look at this. Verse 
1 of chapter 4. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For for he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. That's a powerful verse right there. Does that mean if you get born again that you never will sin? That's not what he's saying here. Go with me over to Romans chapter 6. Amen. Everybody got your Bibles tonight? I like to turn to the scriptures. You guys know that. It's easy to, uh, to just quote them to you. But I think everybody should learn where they're at in their Bibles. Underline them. Mark it up. All right, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Say amen if you're there. All right. So Paul here, talking to the church, says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, everybody say therefore. Therefore. Remember when you see a therefore, what's it there for? Because we've been baptized into Christ even unto his death, we are buried with him. We're buried. As far as God's concerned, your old man, your sinful man is dead. Now you may still sin. You may feel like, shoot, I wish I could have not done that today. As far as God sees it, you're dead. You're dead. And the sin that was in that old man is dead. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should what? Walk. Did it say run in newness of life? No, it says walk in newness of life. Amen? We should walk in newness of life. So what Paul is instructing the believer to do there is, is that we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin even as God has. So what does that mean? Say you go in, out tonight and you sin. You do something, you know you're convicted in your heart. Do you get saved again? Do you have to come back Sunday morning and say the sinner's prayer or get baptized again? No. You say, thank you, Father. My sins are forgiven. I plead the blood of Jesus. I reckon myself dead to sin and that thing's got no authority over me. I have the Holy Spirit and I'm going to walk in newness of life. And when you say that, the power of the Holy Ghost, it is in you. It energizes you and it gives you power to walk a victory sinless life. You say, can the Christian live a sinless life? I say, yes, they can. Do they? Oftentimes they don't. But the power there on the inside is available. Amen. Or Paul's a liar. Yes, grace. So we reckon ourselves dead to sin. See ourselves how God sees us. All right. And that's how we cease to sin. And the Bible is very clear about habitual sin, um, the sin nature, sin, the sin. All right. There is the sin that leads to death, and that is the sin of unbelief. The sin that leads to death is unbelief. Why? Because if you don't believe, how can you receive the blood? How can you receive forgiveness of sin? How can you receive newness of life? How can you receive life in the resurrection if you don't believe? You can't. So what is the sin that leads to death? Unbelief. All right? It's not suicide. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is the the sin of unbelief. You understand? So, that's what he means in back to our text in chapter 4, verse 1. For he that hath suffered in the flesh, in other words, that's another way of saying we've been crucified with Christ. We have ceased from sin. Verse 2, that he no longer should live 
the rest of his time in this flesh or in this body to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. All right. Now. Look at verse three. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. And this King James is, he, these guys, man, they're funny how they write sometimes. I looked this up in the New King James. It says, we have spent enough of our life serving the will of the Gentiles. In other words, Peter's saying, look, guys, I don't know when you guys got saved. That guy was saved at 24, Amen. 1994, March of 1994, in the backside of a desert in Tucson, Arizona. You know, 24 years was enough of my life to give to the will of the Gentiles. And what's the will of the Gentiles? What does he mean by that? Look at that. He says, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, banquetings, or drinking parties... And abominable idolatries. What's the will of the Gentiles? To be lewd. That's a sexual lewdness. Um, the King James there. Lasciviousness. That's like a, 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 a filthy sexual desire is what that is. All right. Lusts. Whether it be for women. For gold. For power. You know we're always warned guys. Stay away from the glory the gals and the gold, amen? That's what they always told me. Jeremy, when you're growing up, man, you know, watch those three things. The gold, the glory, and the gals. They'll take you down, man. Excess wine or drunkenness. To drink or not to drink, what is the question? I choose abstinence. Why? Because when I go to the Grand Canyon and I like to look over the view, I don't like to stand on the edge and try to get a selfie. You know, there's so many accidents now. They say the accident rate and deaths at the Grand Canyon since the whole selfie thing has started, it's gone through the roof. The amount of deaths that they've had at the Grand Canyon with people trying to get as close to the edge as they can. You know, when it comes to sobriety or, you know, I choose to abstain, you know, or, and you say, well, why? You know, what's the difference? Well, I mean, are we to abstain from fornication? Yeah. You know, abstain from, you know, taking drugs. You know, I really feel it's not a law, but for my, my walk, abstinence is the best policy for me. I don't go to the casino to have a Coca-Cola. <laughs> you know, I had a serious problem with gambling when I was in the Navy. Jesus delivered me from that. I can't go and just have fun and play slots like it's Monopoly or something like that. No, man, that's a vice. Hey, gambling is a vice, all right? That's just the bottom line. Yeah, it's legal in our society now with lottery and all the casinos that are being built all around here and stuff. But listen, guys, it's a vice. And for many years, many, you know, for a good few decades, men fought, the law fought those vices. You know, the lottery was just numbers running from the mafia. The mafia in New York and all these other high mob crime places, they used to run numbers. It was like a lottery through the city, and you could go to jail for that, and many people did. But when the government felt like, you know, they could get a little profit off of that and start taxing and all that, they thought, well, let's just make the run of numbers game a legal thing and call it the lottery. It's the same thing with alcohol. Alcohol was a vice. They made it legal. Marijuana, how we all, most of us have grown up with marijuana being a vice. It's legal in a lot of states now. Why? Because of taxation. Just because these things in, in it, out there says it's legal, it doesn't mean it's right, guys. It doesn't mean it's right. Just because, because laws change. Man's laws change from century to century. But guess what? There's a law that is higher above any man's laws. It has never changed. The word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you follow it, if you obey it, you will never be in confusion on what's right or wrong for your life. Amen? You never will. This word has never failed me. 
Raise your hands if this word has never failed you. It's never led you into confusion. It's never led you into a place where it leads you into trouble. Never has. The Bible says the word of God in Psalms 119, it's like a light unto my path. It's like the brightest LED you could shine to get your way through a dark and terrible place. When I used to live out in this Arizona, they had this cave you could go in. And we'd go in there and we'd shut the lights out. It's the darkest place I've ever been in my life. It was so dark. I, I mean, I literally couldn't see it. I could not see a thing. You're looking around. I mean, there wasn't a, a, a hint of light. You know, that's what hell's going to be like. Imagine that and a constant heat source. Because the Bible says when God renews the earth, there will be no sun to give light. For who is the light source? He is the light source. And if Jesus, the, and the, that, if, he, if that's the light source, and he's in heaven in the new Jerusalem, that light source is not in hell. So there's no light in hell. And if you've ever gone cave diving and turned out your LED light, could you imagine that for eternity? This thing's real. This gospel and what Jesus went to the cross for is real. He don't want us spending eternity in that kind of blackness. That's why he died on a cross for our sins. And that glorious light raised him from the dead. And so because of all that, I've given the Gentiles enough time in my life. Amen. I've given drinking parties plenty of days. So why give them any more? Why give lewdness any more time of my life? And when you decide, you know what? I'm not giving it any more time of my life. It doesn't deserve another minute of my life. This is what will happen in verse 4. Wherein they, the Gentiles or the non-believers or the people you used to run with, they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. In other words, hey, how come you don't come down to the tavern anymore? Hey, how come you don't come out karaoke in with us anymore? How come you don't come out, you know, come have a few beers before the ball game anymore, Jeremy? Hey, how come you can't, we can't come and you won't pass the duchy to the left-hand side or whatever that song was, you know? How come you're not rolling one this weekend, brother? Because I've given you enough time in my life. They think it's strange. They think it's weird. They call you names. They call you a holy roller. Oh, he's got religion. He's one of them Christians. He doesn't like us anymore. He thinks he's better than us. They think they're better than us. They don't come down to the tavern anymore because they think they're too good for us now. You heard that? No, I don't think I'm too good for you. I think he's too good for you. Jesus is too good for you. In other words, I'm choosing Jesus over you. That's what we're saying. I don't think I'm too good. He's too good. When you actually think about what he done for us and what he went through, he's too good. Amen? Now, so they, they make fun of us. They speak evil of us, the Bible here says. But look at this, verse 5, it says, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? These people that make fun of you because you don't want to hang out with them and do all those things that was listed in verse 3 anymore? You know, I've known people, I've known Christians that have had girlfriends, and when they got saved... They said, you know what, honey, I'm born again, and I think we should stop sleeping together. And 
the, 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 the girl, she gets offended. She says, well, just that's, you're just too good for me then now because you got Jesus, huh? And they leave them. It happens. And you got to be willing to pay the price for the one you love. That's what this whole book's about, Peter's suffering. Suffering the things that hurt. Because you don't think he hurt on that cross, man. That suffering that he went through. Man, you just go watch The Passion by Mel Gibson. Go watch that scene, man, where he trips and falls and the cross drops on the floor. His mother comes running to him. He turns her and he says, Mom, I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to make all things new. That kind of stuff, man, is real. Amen. And we got to get tired as a church on this petty stuff. Being worried about what people think about us. Being worried about being called names. Being worried about not being popular. Being worried about what side we should politically be on. There's only one government that the church should be under. That's the government of the kingdom to come. The kingdom of heaven is what we're citizens of. So, all those people that make fun of you, that treat you like you're weird because you love Jesus, they're going to come under the judgment. Verse 5 says, they're going to give an account to him who is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Hallelujah. I love that word in the King James, quick and the dead. I like how they, they, they separate that word and call it quick. It means living, but it's not just living as like we're all alive because we're all breathing in here tonight, right? So you would say we're living. But let's, let's dive into this for a minute if you've got some time tonight. Two places. First place. Colossians 2.13. Keep your finger over in 1 Peter. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Say amen when you're there. Amen. I find Colossians the hardest book in the Bible to find. God's electric power company. It's always after Philippians. I, for some reason, I always think it's before. All right. What I say? Colossians what? 2.13. All right, look at this. Verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, all right, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. All right? So there were two places there. We were dead but then he made us alive. And when, when, when the Bible talks about the quick or the quickened, he's talking about those that were made alive by him, by his spirit, okay? Because God classifies every human being either dead or alive. And there are people that are living right now that God classifies them as dead. They're dead. Not the dead that we were talking about were dead and being buried all right, but being dead, in other words, he already sees them judged and condemned. Go with me over to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 18. John chapter 3, verse 18. Everybody there? All right. Pastor's been preaching out of this since January. Loving it. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. See, believing gets us out of the state of condemnation. Why Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I was already condemned. I was already condemned the moment I came out of my mom's womb. The minute I was born, I was condemned. 
And I've always said, you don't think sin is in humanity. You wait till that them children get to be about a year old, put them in one room with one toy. You'll find out real quick what dwells inside a person. They go crazy over that one toy. I got seven of them. Now, so the point being here is he's going to judge the quick, which is us, the born again, and the dead. For this cause, back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. All right, now this is what we talked about a little bit last week when I said that when Jesus, when he died, all right, before he went to heaven, he went to the underworld to a place called Hades. And Hades has two chambers, Abraham's bosom and the place of torment. You can find all of this in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, in the story of Lazarus. And this wasn't a parable because Jesus used the phrase certain man. All right. And this is a specific story that Jesus was telling his disciples, giving us a description of hell, Hades. Now, everybody that followed the the law of Moses and that believed in the coming of the Messiah went into Abraham's bosom, which was the good side, the paradise side. All right. Everybody that did not, that rejected it, that didn't follow it, that didn't believe it, they went to the place of torment. Jesus, when he died for our sins, he broke the curse of sin and death. At that point, the people in, in Hades, they were still bound by death. You know, Abraham and his sons, when they died, Jesus hadn't died for sin yet. He hadn't, rose, he hadn't died for sin to pay the penalty, and he hadn't rose from the dead to conquer it, conquer death. So they had to go to a holding place because it hadn't happened yet. But it wasn't a place of torment because they believed that he was coming to deliver them. That's what the whole Old Testament is about, pointing to the deliverer. So those that believed in the deliverer, they went to this holding place until death and the grave had been defeated, which Jesus did. So once he did, he went down to them and he preached the gospel to them. And he said, here I am. This is me. You've been waiting for me. Guess what? I've got a place to take you. And he's emptied hell. He emptied hell according to Ephesians when he took captivity captive. And why does he say captivity? Why were they called captivity? Because they were captive, weren't they? They were captive to the grave. They were captive to hell, to that place. They were captive to death until Jesus could come and deliver them. If Jesus would never have gone to the cross and he had never been resurrected, they'd still be sitting in that place. So in a sense, it was like a prison. It was a place of captivity. But he came, took captivity captive, and took them up into heaven with him. But he did not take the place of torment. The rich ruler is still there today. Lazarus is not there, but that rich ruler is still there. And the Lord will deal with that in its time. In the end of all things, according to verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be you therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Key words there. Sober and prayer. Wow. Sober and prayer. Above all things, have a fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. So I like that word charity because when we see that, we think of the word love, but it's an agape love, all right? Not a brotherly love or um, an, an erotic love. It's an, an agape love, 
an unconditional love. Amen. And um, and that's a wonderful thing to have in your marriage. As a matter of fact, that should you should not get married unless you know that there's that agape love that's flowing. And how does it flow? It's not something you can muster up. The Bible says the love of God or the agape love has been shed abroad in our hearts by what? The Holy Ghost. Only the Holy Ghost can give you that kind of love. So if you want agape love in your marriage, marry somebody full of the Holy Ghost. Amen? Because if they don't have the Holy Ghost, they're, not, they're only going to have maybe some eros, maybe a little bit of brotherly love, maybe some phileo, but they're not going to have the unconditional love of God that you're going to need to make it like some of these couples in here over 50 years. So, but also towards each other in the church. You know, we're not to be quick to find each other's faults in the church. You can always tell a church that is religious, and I mean that in the negative sense, where they're, they're not grace people or they're, um, they're under the law, um, because they're always trying to, you know, find each other's faults out and broadcast them. Now, let's be clear here. We're not to just be able to let each other get away with whatever we want to get away with. No, that's not what it's saying here. What it's saying is, though, is that we should cover them. All right? That we should have enough love to cover them or forgive them. All right? A lot of times we want to always say, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be seeing her. You shouldn't be going out there. But we don't want to say, I forgive you, though. We love you. I'm not, you know, not holding it against you. I'm just saying it's not going to help you. We always want to point it out, but we never want to cover it. We want to expose it, but we never want to cover it. We do half the job. Agape covers a multitude of sin. That's how we should walk with each other in the church. Verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. That's a good one. What does he mean grudgingly? Hey, we'd like to come over to your house for dinner tonight. Okay. Oh, man, not them again. I don't know about that. You know? Or, uh, you know, you go to your... Hey, you know, so-and-so said they're going to drop by for a cup of coffee. What? Why why do you tell me they weren't coming over? I don't want them coming over here. What do you do? Let me know. You know... I think we've talked about this before, but, you know, there are some people that have the gift of hospitality more than others. I believe that. But if you feel like you don't have the gift of hospitality, I I still don't see that you get a pass in the scripture for being hospitable. There's no pass. In other words, you can't say, oh, that's not my gift, brother. (laughs) That's not my gift. I want to come over for dinner tonight. Sorry, man, that's not my gift. It doesn't say that. It actually says we're to be hospitable towards one another. All right? And you know, when, there's a, when you're at a house and you're visiting, and this is the other thing I was telling Catherine. You know, this COVID thing that we've gone on, I mean, you know, we have to let the Holy Spirit deal with us, and especially about meeting and be having each other in our homes. There seems to be an attack on being made having people being welcome in your home. And, you know, we need to make each other welcome in our homes. And we shouldn't be afraid of that. Um, You know, the early church was flourished in the temple and the home. The Jesus movement out in the 1970s, you know, the 1970s were an amazing time in history. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we depend on today as a church had its birth, had its roots. And it wasn't just a revival. The 1970s was not Toronto or Brownsville. The 1970s was a great awakening. The 1970s was like, you know, what we saw at Cane Ridge. The awakenings that we had, the great awakenings with the Wesleys and Jonathan Edwards. There were 
thousands upon thousands upon thousands that were saved mightily. All them hippies that came out of the 60s. All that unrest that came out of the 60s. Jesus showed up in California, man, and people were just falling in love with Jesus. Falling in love with the Bible. And it was amazing. It was an amazing time, the 1970s. And so, one of the fundamental things in the 1970s in the Jesus movement was house, was houses. People would hang out in houses every night, house to house. You know, but I feel we're, you know, we need to let the Lord soften us up and make us more open to having people in our homes again. Especially even now. What if, you know, I mean, God forbid, but what if, for, I mean, you know, we live in a time now where the government could come and they could seize whatever they want to seize. What if they decide, you know, they want to do this or they want to do that? I'm just speaking, you know, at, off of my mind here. Only to put an emphasis on, we got to start loving to have people in our homes again. We got to love wanting people in our houses again. And that's what he means by being hospitable one to another. Don't forsake that. That is such a precious thing the church has. Now, every man that has received a gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The Lord, if he's given you a gift, don't hold it back. It's pretty obvious who has gifts. And most people know what they have, but their brain, through timidity, tells them they don't have it or they can't, you, you, you can't be that. But you know down in your heart, when you're worshiping the Lord or the Holy Spirit is moving on you, you know what the Lord has given you. He doesn't keep that a secret. And you know what? Most of the time, he doesn't keep that a secret from your brothers and sisters in the church. They can usually see it on you before you can. And when you use it, in good stewardship, it's a delight to the body. And so we're to minister one to another as good stewards, you know, letting everybody get involved. Because I love the word manifold there. Because the manifold is, is, you know, when I think of manifold, I always think of the, the manifold in your car. You know, the, what they call it, the exhaust manifold. And, you know, it's, 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 it's many different pipes. You know, that exhaust comes out many different pipes in the beginning, and now it gets transferred into one. But, you know, you have a fuel manifold. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that distributes something across many channels. All right? You, me, the body of Christ, we are the manifold grace of God that distributes his goodness over many different channels to one another and to the world. You know, I may have a gift, but there are just some people that that gift's not going to give, it's not going to help them. But that gift that is in you is going to help them. Why? Because the Lord decides who he wants. He wants it to be manifold. He wants it to be spread across many channels. You know, there are many times when we lead worship up here, you know, I may do a song and it's okay. It's all right. I mean, it's just go okay. But Christine or Rick or Dave, they may hit a song and all of a sudden the anointing's on that song. I don't, I don't get an attitude. I don't get, a, a, you know, insecure being the worship leader here thinking, oh man, you know, they sounded better than me and the anointing God really fell on them, blah, blah, blah. No. Because I, I have confidence in the manifold grace of God that he distributes his gifts how he sees fit. Not as I see fit. It's how he sees fit. And if God wants to decide to let the anointing flow through somebody else, do I get offended? No. 
what I should do is just sit back and receive. Amen? So, beloved, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God gives. So that word, if any man speaks, all right? Now remember, you know how I feel about the word man in the Bible. God created man. He created a male and female, okay? There's two parts of man, male and female. There's two parts of a zebra. There's a male zebra and a female zebra, amen? There's a male man and a female man. So, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Or in other words, let him speak as the voice or the word of God. And of that word speak, if you're preaching or you're teaching. Paul says, don't just think you can get up here and just, you know, preach the word of God like you're teaching some sort of motivation seminar down at Chrysler. That's a whole nother ball game up here. A whole nother ball game. And if you ever step in the pulpit to teach the word of God, you're accountable. And I don't know a preacher worth his salt that has never entered into the pulpit with fear and trembling. Thinking that they can just do it willy-nilly. If they can, they're not a good, good shepherd. They're not a good, they, you know, it's, that's not good, all right? So, so when you get up to speak or teach like that, you have to rep, realize that you're speaking the word of God. And this is the thing. I'm going to step on a toe or two here tonight, if I haven't already. But this also goes to the hearers too. When the man of God or the woman of God is teaching or preaching the word of God, you need to hear it as if it is the oracle of God. So many times people are, you know, the word of God is being preached and people are running, going back and forth, doors are slamming, people in and out of the bathrooms, people over here just walking around like they're in an airport. It's not right. I've been in some meetings, man, when the preacher begins to speak, they close the doors. And if you go out to use the bathroom, you're not getting back in. Why? Because they put a powerful respect on the preaching of the Word of God. And people need to get it together when it comes to the ministering of God's Word and pay some respect as hearers that that is the oracle of God. The pastor's here tonight. I'm not trying to get any special points. But when he's preaching up there, you need to sit down. Quit moving around. Quit disrespecting the man of God when they're trying to bring the word. You know, you know how distracting it is when you're up there and you're in a moment, man, you're preaching and all of a sudden. And five. It's, it takes your attention off the Holy Spirit as he's giving you a download to speak. we got to have reverence to these things. We, we used to have them, church. You know this. Those of you who've been in church for a while, you know. It used to not be like this. You used to not have all this to and fro and all the time. I remember when I first got saved, I sat in that second row in that first chair, and I didn't move from the time worship started till the time the altar time was finished and church was dismissed. You just didn't move. When you go to Cinemax and you watch your two and a half hour movie with your popcorn and your coke, you don't move. You won't even go to the bathroom because you don't want to miss a part. You're glued. You can't even come into church and sit for an hour without moving. It's wrong. It's wrong, church. If we really want God to move like we keep saying we want him to move, this respect and this reverence has to come to a new level. And I thank God you guys are the ones that are here to hear this. 
And most of you know this because you're here on a Wednesday night. This church should be filled here on a Wednesday night for Bible study. All the Sunday goers that are not here tonight, man, you guys need to hear this if you're going to listen to this on the tape. You need to start respecting the word of God when it's being preached as it is the oracle of God. So anyway, that God in all things may be glorified. That's the reason why. What? That's that's why. That's why you stay in your seat. Not because I'm somebody. Not because pastor's somebody. Not because the leaders in the church are somebody. Because God is somebody. That this is actually a place where God dwells, man. You know, that's why you always hear me. You know, when, when we start the service, man, let's just, let's get in a place where we're ready to put our focus on him. I understand. I love fellowship. But I like the way the English do it. In England, when everybody came to church, they came in the doors, they sat down. They got their eyes, they get their eyes on God. And then after church, they all have tea and biscuits. After church, when everybody's repented, when everybody's filled with the Spirit, when everybody's refreshed in the Lord, then they have their fellowship. Have tea and biscuits after church. That's a great, that's a great idea. You may not want to see me first thing before church. I'm still working. I've gone getting out of the flesh, getting the week's dirt off of me, man. It's a good idea to have fellowship after service. So anyway, just a few things. But at the end of the day, guys, that all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Church is all about God. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Him. Amen. Yep, yep. It's the most wonderful way we can show our devotion and our love to Him is by coming and being together. It is the fundamental way. <clears throat> Praise God. Amen. That was a bit hard tonight, but... I feel like I needed that. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.